love for you to join me in um, James chapter 1, and we'll continue on in our series um, called Faith in Action. Faith in Action. Uh, James is uh, writing a letter to uh, New Testament church. He's the big kahuna in Jerusalem, and he's explaining that, um, that faith is, is, is less so a journey from um, being Hitler to, uh, you know, uh, Mother Teresa, that, that human depravity doesn't mean that we're all vicious, vile, you know, vipers and diapers. Human depravity just means that we're hypocrites, that uh, there's a brokenness, there's a fracturedness in our heart. Um, there's a Jekyll and a Hyde in our hands. There's, there's uh, um, different, um, really, natures that uh, kind of battle around us. But in Christ, um, we are the righteousness of Christ, and, and by faith, the Spirit is putting us back together again and making us whole. Um, but we'll just begin with this question this morning as we get into the Scripture. Uh, do you believe um, in your heart of hearts that people can change? Um, that if somebody comes to you today uh, and they had burned you once or twice or maybe three times and they say that they're changing, do you really believe that they're going to change? Uh, or if you hear a guy who's excited about his new weight loss program and he's um, watched a YouTube and he's been inspired and he even has a method behind that and he's ready to make a change, do you actually believe, like what's the percentage that in 365 days, you know, that he's actually going to be different? Uh, do you believe... Um, that change is actually deep, you know, um, that it's not just a, a transfer of coping mechanisms, you know, from one drug to another, whether it's, you know, alcohol to cigarettes or cigarettes to phone or phone to shopping, like, like is it actually deep-rooted in something substantial that is not just conforming to some outside rules, but actually being changed from the inside out? Um, do you believe that, that change is, is actually something that's holistic? Are we clinging on for dear life for the rest of life, or can we actually expect that we could be healed? to be circumcised of the heart and to, and to be changed from the inside out. And um, I, had, um, I, I was reflecting on this question myself, um, had, had a, a testimony come to mind of a young man, um, much like probably a guy that you sat next to in, in trigonometry, and uh, just like maybe some of the guys or maybe you growing up with, you know, drinking on the weekends, you know, just kind of having good times, dabbling in different drugs, just doing what everybody else was doing and largely safe, at least in terms of uh, his immediate safety. As time goes on, some people just kind of snap out of that and go to college and, and, and change directions. Uh, this individual just continued to, instead of move on, go deeper and deeper into some of that lifestyle and went from, you know, um, uh, meth to, to even heroin to lots of different hard drugs and substances to the point when I saw his face, you know, a couple years ago on Facebook, I could barely recognize the guy that sat next to me, you know, in trigonometry, how much 10 years can, can change a person. And uh, it was actually in that in that trauma, in that trial, that uh, that young man found Jesus, or I should say Jesus found him, became a believer, became a Christian, and, um, and not just like because I got drugged to school when I was a kid, like deeply knew profoundly the brokenness, confronted the brokenness of himself and found the wholeness of Jesus, and now is married to somebody that he loves and um, continuing to walk, walk forward in life even with a, with a limp, albeit. Um, I have a lot of people in my life, uh, in my family and in my circle, I call it um, gone from tank to teddy bear. Um, you know that person that when they're younger, they're that eight on the Enneagram and they're just ready to be a powder keg and explode whenever you say the wrong thing to them and you got to tiptoe around what they're going to say. And um, something about the sandpaper of life, something about um, the trials and the tribulations wear off the hard edges. And oftentimes it's those tanks in your life that have the tenderest hearts that really care about people really, really deeply. And, and somehow, uh, whether it's life or if they're a Christian, you know, the Spirit of God, uh, can transform a person from using their strength to keep others out and push others down to using their strength to lift others up towards Jesus. And it's a mighty thing in the hand of God to see uh, a person change that way. 
Or maybe somebody that in your life is, is uh, just critical. And what is it they say? You know, C.S. Lewis says that humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking less about yourself. And usually the hurt people hurt people, and the people that are most critical of you, they're hard to live around, they're probably hard to live with of themselves. They're probably the most critical of themselves. And, and whether it's sudden or, 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 or fast or slow and deliberate and tedious, we do see, see change, even though it's rare, we do see, you know, deep change. And, um, and so my experience, and you probably would have to attest to this to some degree, is that when you um, see a before and after picture, when you see especially somebody that goes from dark to light when it comes to Christ, when you see somebody who goes to dead to life and see that actually practically take place, not just in theological agreement, you are, you are witnessing from a human level, not just like a practical change and, and, a, and, a, and a differing thing of, 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 uh, of life practices and behavior, what you are really experiencing and encountering is something deeply spiritually reverent and something that is almost sacred. Like when you see somebody change, like get out of an old habit of, of health issues or get out of a habit of being intimidated by bullies in their family and, and stand up and actually do something different, it's like you're, you're experiencing a window into something that you don't see every day. It's almost like that Shawshank Redemption movie, right? When the guy breaks out of prison and all the prisoners have to look at that little moment and really start to ask questions, not just about Andy, the guy that escapes out of prison, but really just life and their experience. Something about when people change in deep and meaningful and lasting ways just makes you say, wow. Because you're looking at that and what you realize in that very moment when somebody changes that drastically, you realize that's not common, that's rare. People don't change. For the most part, people get set in their ways and stuck in their ways and they continue to walk on. And every now and again, somebody breaks through the portal, breaks through the seam, and you look at that person and you go, you, you found something. It's not just practical, it's divine. There's something sacred that just happened in our midst. It moves us to this place of, of gratitude, you know, like when something good happens for somebody else, you know, it tests whether or not you have gratitude in your heart because usually it can cause us to be je- jealous or bitter or something that somebody else got and you didn't get. But when you see somebody that has struggled like with health or weight or something like that, and then they move into this place of health and empowerment, like you're not, there's, there's not really a competitiveness. It's just in the human experience. You're like, man, man, like hope is possible. There's something grateful that comes against our hearts when we see real change because we realize that change is possible. And, and the reason why it's good news and why we'd be grateful for it is because ultimately, I think when we're seeing stories like that, we have to ask ourselves the question, if it's possible for them, I wonder if that testimony is really an invitation that it might be possible for me. Is change possible for me? I think that's what really we're reckoning with when somebody breaks through and, and sees not just a, a difference made in their life, but an actual inside-out change. Although it's rare, it's sacred, it's divine. And so uh, James, in uh, the bottom of uh, chapter one, I think explains that a little bit of, of, of why change is so sacred and why change is, is so rare um, in the sense that he, he lines up for the practical people in this room, like myself, three simple steps, honestly, that are in all the three different paragraphs of this passage. And it outlines as an index for the rest of the book, really, of how brokenness gets turned into wholeness. And this is the three steps. It's pretty simple, but pretty hard at the same time. And the first step is to listen James is going to, I think between the lines, make the argument that most people, as they're talking with others, are waiting to talk. That talking is, is, is rampant in social media, prevalent. Um, it is constant and prevailing. But listening is rare, and that all change starts with knowing that you don't know something and listening. Secondly, that change uh, happens not just from listening to a problem or labeling it, but actually taking action and doing something about it. 
Um, it, is, um, it is embracing the possibility for, for failure and pain and rejection and taking small, scary, and, and scriptural steps, but nonetheless taking steps. He says that's where blessing lives. And lastly, um, to talk about it. Many of us in the room would be desperate and dire for just somebody, what Donald Miller says, a mentor or somebody that has both authority and empathy. Somebody that knows what they're talking about and cares who they're talking to. And the reason why that's so rare is because, for the most part, people are talking without listening and listening without doing. And then, and then, and then not having anything to say at the end of it. And so what, he's, what I think he's going to make the point as we, as we make our way through this passage, the reason why change is sacred, but it's also so rare, is because mostly humans, where it is that we could change through gospel listening, gospel doing, and gospel talking, do the exact opposite. That most people do not listen first and do next and talk last. Most people, like you and me, talk first, maybe get around to some aimless busyness, you know, uh, and, um, and keeping active. Um, although it might be frivolous, and then listen last. And if we do listen, probably listen for the thing we already knew or wanted to hear in the first place. And so do you know somebody, for example, that, um, that just likes to talk? Have you met somebody that it just, as they're talking, you're thinking to yourself, I think you like the sound of your voice. I think you like um, to talk a lot. You don't have a ton of experience in this area, but you will definitely offer your opinion. You know, you just ask them that opinion and they are, like what Michael Scott says, sometimes I just open up my mouth and just hope that something makes sense when it comes out. Like, you know, people that just like to talk. You know, they don't have experience, they don't have example, but they do have opinion. Do you know anybody um, that, um, that has a calendar that's busy, but yet um, largely aimless? That it's running from one thing to the next, starting something and never finishing it, going from one thing to the next for years and years and years, and never really walking a straight line. Like James says, the fear of, of, and the emotions of waves, um, choosing and, and, and riding every wave of emotion wherever it would land and whoever cares where it ends up. Have you ever met a, somebody that... Um, that they don't make drama, that drama follows them. That strangely enough, that there's just chaos and, and arguing everywhere that they go, because what is arguing but talking louder and longer so that I can be heard and you can't be heard, um, and so we compete over the communication of listening, talking. And how many in this room know that that person is you? How many uh, of you know that as James says, and as he's quoting his uh, older half-brother Jesus, uh, on the Sermon on the Mount, that the suffering that we, that we have in sin is, is not really being completely um, evil and, 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 and malicious and maleficent, you know, um, as being a Hitler, but it is being a, a, a hypocrite. And it is, um, it is talking and, and, and listening to things without actually changing and without actually doing. Ultimately, I think the reason why James would tell us um, in a room like this today that change is rare because ultimately change is hard. But change is available in Christ. Christ is our change agent. And he is not testing us beyond what we can bear. We have all things we need for godliness. And that the Spirit is guiding us to all truth. Change is not only possible for those in Christ, change is inevitable. It might happen slower than we want it to. It might happen uglier than we want it to. But ultimately, that is the business of God. The greatest gift that God ever gave anybody is Christ-likeness. Just like with your kids, you wouldn't care if your kids ended up having a nice car and a nice house. What you would want most for your kids is freedom from the slavery of opinion. The ability to go to a Bible study and, and leave and not wonder the entire time about how they sounded in the Bible study as being the most important thing. The ability to be free of substance and not running from high to high, to be steadfast in their commitments. The ability to, to walk in Christ's likeness is the greatest thing that Christ ever offered us. And he ultimately is the vehicle of our change and doing good work in us um, even today. So if you would uh, just join me here in James chapter 1 verse 19, we're going to kind of make our way through, through James's passage um, in his letter to the churches, he says in verse 19, my dear brothers and sisters, 
he says, not my dear fellow Americans. He says, to Christians, this is what you're dealing with, even in Christ. Take note of this because he says, everyone uh, should be quick to listen and slow to speak. Might focus in on that one word. Everyone is not just, you know, fours on the Enneagram or um, a certain type of Myers-Briggs person or Everyone isn't just, you know, like the young people that need to listen to the old people. Everyone, no matter who you are or where you are or, or, or what you're doing, will have the propensity to not listen. And he's saying, don't do that. That the, that the incline of our heart is to talk and not listen. Don't do that. Because everyone at all times should be conscious to take note of listening because it's not natural to us. We should listen because we're talkers. And the reason we know we're talkers is because we practice... Man, human's anger, not God's anger. We continually talk louder and longer over one another because we want to be heard and we don't want to hear. That is the propensity of all human nature that's born in Adam, that's born in Eve. So verse 20 says, because human anger doesn't produce righteousness that God desires. And I want you to pay attention because he has a sleight of hand here. And I want you to notice this, and I think it's on purpose, that in the first two verses of this passage, 19 and 20, we're clearly talking about listening to people. We're talking about what you were doing just now with your family, in the kitchen, the conversation you had on the way to the car, what you're doing with your brother on the phone when you catch up. We're talking about how we listen to people, but notice how quickly he shifts the conversation without even giving you a but and a therefore and a hinge and a transitional word. He just starts talking about listening to God. He, talks, he starts talking about listening to people, and then without giving you any warning, he just moves into talking and listening to God. He says, therefore, get rid of all moral filth and evil that is so prevalent around you, and he says, humbly accept the word. I mean, that's not the, the word on the podcast you're listening to, or Dave Ramsey, that's the word of Jesus, he's saying, not just people, but God. Listen to the word which can save you. So I, I did this little research, a uh, little project this week, and I found out on Psychology Day that 95% of people uh, in this room, if I asked you, are you a good listener? 95% of everyone's hands would raise. They say, I'm, I'm a pretty decent listener. I'm a good listener. And 95% would say, yes, I am. And, and then beyond that, that, out of that 95% of people that raise their hands and says they're good listeners, all of those 95% of people would not remember 50% of the conversation they just had five minutes before they had, that, before they had that little survey, which goes to show that most of us think we're great listeners, but we're not. Right? And it goes on to talk about the reason for this, and he gives you three big reasons. It's, it's shame and fear and pride. Basically, there's three reasons why I'm not a good listener, and you're not a good listener if we fit in that 95%. And the first one just has to do with shame. I'm not listening to you because I'm worried how I look. And if I have any care about what, I'm, what I look like or sound like, I'm more worried about what I'm going to say after you get done talking than what you're actually saying. So that's a big problem and interruption. The second thing uh, that gets in the way of our listening has to do with fear, right? So like the attention deficit and, and, the, and the problem solving, I'm constantly in, in lots of different areas solving problems in the back of my head as I'm talking to you because I can't afford to fully be present in any given moment because it'll cause me to lose sight of all the problems that are swirling around me so I can't possibly listen to you. So it's shame, but it's also fear. And lastly, it's also pride. That if I come into this room and I believe I'm the smartest person in the room, then it's a detriment to all of us that I'm not talking, right? Because if you have the microphone, you're going to be saying things that I already know. So that's the idea of the thing between, between listening is, is the shame and the fear and the pride. It's much deeper rooted than, than some other type of a skill set. But I wanted to point your attention to the passages we were reading earlier. For James, he, he, is, he is seamlessly transitioning to that conversation of psychology today, to the biblical conversation of listening to the word, because in his mind, somehow, he believes that listening to God has a whole lot to do with listening to people. 
Later on in this book, he's going to tell you this really quippy little saying, and I think it's really great to memorize and think about. He says, hey, listen, guys, your tongue is a weapon, and so don't curse people that God made in his image with your tongue and then bless him on Sunday, right? That's a shaky little sermon. That's, that's, that's punchy. Don't curse. If, if I love the one that made me, then don't curse things that he made is a good thing. And that makes sense to me because I shouldn't curse image bearers in his name. But listening to people versus loving people is two separate things, right? Listening to people actually takes in the words that they're talking about versus loving people just loves the, the person that they are because they're made in God's image. And James is saying those are not two separate categories. Listening to God is like listening to people and listening to people is like listening to God. For example, if my neighbor is a separate race from me, let's say they're a believer or they're not a believer, what listening to people mean, like, the reason why listening to people would be important to listening to God is because if I'm supposed to love my neighbor, I have to know what he needs. So I categorically can't assume I listen to God really well, but I don't have to listen to my neighbor because God always tells the truth and people lie. Because inherently, me abiding by the commandment that God has told me necessitates that I listen to other people because I don't know what I don't know and I can't show up to love my neighbor if I don't know who my neighbor is. Secondly, you're a therapist, right? So we shell out all this money for our therapist uh, to sit down there for an hour. And it's amazing how fast that time flies. And they say, I'm sorry, Mr. Wong, your time's up. Four to five, five o'clock, time to go. And if I had a tape recorder in that office, and this is me, I don't know about you, but probably 95% of the time, I'm talking, not them, right? Here's the person that I'm paying that went to school who knows more than me, and I'm spending 95% of my time talking while they're not talking. And here's what I'm assuming of being with me and then kind of thinking about, you know, a counselor that I've seen before or counselors that you sit with, is that probably they're sitting in their seat, and here's the irony, you're paying them the money, they've gone to school, and as they've talked to you for five or six times, know, your, know what your problem is. They know the answer to the problem because they're very smart, right, and they've thought about it. And really the distance between them speaking into you and you actually hearing it and getting out of the money that you paid for isn't whether or not the answer's in the room, it's whether or not we're listening to it. And I'm guessing that that therapist, because they're human beings, probably has a quotient and probably has an answer in the therapy room. If you guys go to counseling, just a little homework assignment, probably knows the thing that would lead to your change and won't say it because they know you would get offended by it. They will not tell you because they know you're not going to listen to it. This is the irony of the listening. Your spouse, right? Or the person that you do life with, the people that you love, because you know it, because you know the blind spots of other people in your life, knows the answer. They know the distance between you in the broken, shattered state of sanctification into the fullness and wholeness of Christ, they actually have a better viewpoint of the vehicle that's going to get you to wholeness and could give you the answer if only you would listen, if only you would ask, what's it like to live on the other side of me? How can I serve you more? These types of things. And so if you are part of the 5% that psychology today is talking about, if you are part of the 5% and people are swarming you to be mentored and you're just gushing and oozing with the fragrance of Christ and you are just seeing people baptized left and right, and you are seeing healing in every area of life, and you are seeing clarity in every area of life, then don't listen to people, right? You're probably doing fine. <laughs> but for the 95% of the other of, of us, the humbling, painful, and maybe even grueling side of what it's going to take for us to take our next step towards wholeness, for 95% of us, all of us, everyone, it's going to start with listening. It's going to start it's going to start with coming into Sunday services or Bible studies and making commitment not to listen to sermons for other people. It's coming into a space, into a scripture, and not looking at the scripture as something that convinces me of the things I already know to make me feel more comfortable with the place that I'm at so I don't have to go anywhere, 
but expecting that every room and every scripture I read, I'm coming into it to find out things I don't know. And anybody that's changing, nobody is going to get in 365 days more like Christ coming into rooms thinking they know everything. The step one is what James seems to be saying about change, that every person you've ever known that changed has started at this altar. I don't know what I don't know. I am coming into this thing with questions and not answers because I don't know what I don't know. If I did, I would change, but I don't know what I don't know. And so here's this little therapeutic thing. I'm going to put it on the screen. I'm going to practice it with you because this is all of us. I'm in the 95% for sure. Okay, but there's the, there's the line right there. And this is the doorway to transformation. The life in Jesus of flourishing that you've always wanted starts right here. It doesn't start any later than this. Oliver is not, I'm not a good listener. I am worried about how I look. I'm worried about what I'm going to say next. You're too boring for me to listen to with more detail. I'm not perceptive enough. I'm not, I'm not thinking enough. I don't think I need to know. I'm not curious enough, right? And I'm not a good listener. And this is what James seems to be saying is the beginning of all transformation. It's, it's listening before speaking. It is coming into the, p- the place desperately wanting to know what I need to hear. Verse 22 says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself. There's actually two points in this passage. That he talks about the ability for even the scripture. To, you can deceive yourself with scripture. That's crazy to think about. That's wild to think about. You can deceive yourself with scripture. He says, don't just listen to it, but do what it says. How many of you guys have ever found yourself in a math class where the professor is waxing on that calculus problem so much so that you actually think you can do calculus? Right? Have you ever been to this where you go to the thing and they give you the lecture and you go home and you're so confident and you open up that book and you have no idea how to do calculus? Right? The deception, the, the ability for somebody to be able to agree with someone talking but not be able to apply it. The ability to, to hear something and agree with it and have resonance with it, but it actually not be something that internalizes and comes in and changes so much. How much powerlessness goes on when I apply scripture to my neighbor instead of me and deceive myself? So verse 23, anyone who listens to the word uh, does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror before selfie cameras, they didn't imagine being back then, you didn't even know what she looked like. Sees the broccoli between the two front pieces of your teeth and goes, ah, that's pretty good, and moves on, right? Doesn't change anything, looks at his face in the mirror, keeps going. Verse 24, and after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law, and here's what's so paradoxical for us as red-blooded Americans, James says that the perfect law gives freedom. Isn't that crazy? What a paradox, that freedom which we would think would be the absence of laws, is actually, it is actually coming alive to the perfect law. That freedom in Christ is not abolishing laws, it's fulfilling it, and it's not doing what you want, it's becoming who he's created you to be. That fish that's in the fishbowl that figures out how to escape the fishbowl is not free. And that person that runs off into Vegas and does whatever they want and covers it up um, on the weekend, like, uh, like, like the people in Washington, D.C., that, that sin like Vegas, right, and wax like Washington, D.C., they're not free. They are not free, is what the Bible claims. And so freedom actually comes from being formed by Christ. It's not just doing what you want. And not only starts there, but continues on, it says, continues, not forgetting what they heard, but does it, because the blessing doesn't live in the listening. The blessing lives in the doing. So I'm a huge fan, man crush on Jordan Peterson. I just like the way he talks. He just kind of talks into circles like this. He doesn't know notes. He just kind of just has all the illumination. He's so great. I love Jordan Peterson. And... Um, He's not talking about the cross and the resurrection, so we got to have good categories for the difference between, you know, wisdom and gospel, um, but has a lot of great things to say. 
And so I remember they were asking him uh, about change and how people change, and he talks about, you know, clinical, actual experience of people. And he brings up this guy a lot. I've heard him talk, maybe you've heard him say this before, about this guy who's trying to get a new license because um, he's a trucker and he wants to get this new license uh, for construction. It's going to make him more money in his business and so forth. And so he's talking about the process of getting him to go to, uh, to the interview to get this job. And so he talks about, you know, week one and week two and week three and like week one, they're like, okay, we're going to do this little like role play thing where we do the interview. And then, you know, week two, you know, I want you to uh, bring the resume and so forth. And every week, for whatever reason, the guy doesn't bring the resume. And so Jordan Peters, he's like, man, I'm noticing like this little glip in the system. He's not bringing the resume. And so he's like, all right, here's the deal. We're not going to do the, re- the interview. Just bring the resume here. I'm going to role play both sides and we'll talk about how this interview should go. Week four, week five, week six doesn't bring the resume. Well, it turns out, as he kind of dug into it a little bit more, asked questions and listened, the guy started talking. And basically, between 2005 and 2010, there's like this gap in his resume that cannot be explained for his professional career. He has a gap that he cannot justify. And he knows that that gap is disqualifying. He knows that that gap is not going to be erased. He knows that that gap represents turmoil and struggle and personal heartache, and he cannot get through that. This is how big the gap is on this page, and this is how much pain it's causing him in his life. And so what Jordan Peterson is saying is right there, in that little box, I mean, it seems insignificant. Just write, make it up, lie about it. You know what I mean? Like in that little gap, to everyone else, it would seem just like the most weird, you know, unconsequential thing. But to him, it's kryptonite. To him, it is a portal of pain that is screaming at him. It is a dragon with fire. And that gap is keeping him from everything that he needs. Everything else in his life is crumbling down because he cannot stand to face that gap where that pain and that freedom lives. He can't face that gap. And so it is that it seems like Peterson, and ultimately I would argue James, which is way more important in terms of authority, is that what James seems to be telling us about the listening and the doing and then ultimately the talking is that the change, the transformation of Christ that is in ours, purchasing Christ, that swings the gate of slavery of sin and law open so that we can walk out of it with freedom, to walk out of it, that that change feels a lot less like a surgery and more like physical therapy. That that the, the heart transplant of Psalm 51, that God gives us a new heart, there's no heart surgeon that can cut his heart open and put his heart into his chest. That is God's business. But the business of after that person gets sealed up and healed, there is a healing wholeness process that takes place that does not take through osmosis. It doesn't come through praying, going to sleep, and then all of a sudden you wake up and it changes. It doesn't come from um, going to a conference and that preacher comes and they put the one-liner up and it's tweetable and boom, now everything was like this and now everything's like that. That change just happens because there's a light switch turned on. That a lot of change, biblical change, happens through slow, scary, and scriptural steps that almost anyone else would seem silly and foolish, puts you in a weaker position and powerless, but finding change for the first time, that, that, that change is a lot less like a surgery and more like therapy. That it's more like a physical therapy. And so um, some words I have up there on the screen as you think about freedom of Christ, like Galatians 5.1, that we are set free in Christ, so walk in freedom, is not about doing what you want, but freedom in Christ is being formed to be like Christ. The greatest gift that he ever gave a human being is to experience the nature of Christ, to walk out Christ in meaningful day-to-day lives, not just on the highs, but also in the lows, in a 360-degree, 365-day, 52-week-a-year kind of a way. Faith coming to action is freedom in Christ. And so therefore, freedom of Christ if there is a possibility to hear and not do, or do and not say, or say and not do any of it, then freedom of Christ is not just about encourageability, but it's also about accountability. That freedom of Christ probably means 
walking out and writing down a measurable step that if you told your accountability partner that you were going to do it, could be measurable enough that you could fail it. That the distance between us and change involves that. Yes, it's an open heart surgery. Yes, he's transformed us from the inside out. But there is a walking in freedom that will take some, some relearning, some therapy that's going to take place, and it's not going to be fun. It is not going to be easy. Secondly, that it not only involves relationship, but also involves responsibility. That you and I do, are not responsible for people, but we are responsible to people. We are on the hook. You will only have one pastor, and so I am responsible to this position. Your sister will only have one sister, and so you are responsible. No one else will take that seat, and you can fail at that. And Christ will either forgive you for it, or he will fill you for it, or he will form you for it. But makes no mistake about it, he's not abolishing that law. He is fulfilling it in your midst. And so following Christ in freedom means taking responsibility. It means having ownership. It's circling around, starting with writing up my resume and making my bed, and moving its way from the inside out to take ownership with Christ to see this thing walked out. And so, um, I, you know, I was, um, I was even celebrating this as I was thinking about, what, 10 years ago, my buddy Luke Steffensmeyer, many of you guys know him, him and his wife, Charlene, are beautiful people at the church. They lead, lead a small group. I remember like 10 years ago, he was getting Kelton Cox to make him a hat, you know, with Reedy River Landscaping, and now his business is just huge. And, I, and this just shows you exactly, there's people that are risk takers and they make businesses and do things, and then there's people that just like hide in the corner and scream on Snoopy, you know, roller coasters, right? Like, what you have witnessed, and what I have witnessed knowing Luke is not some overnight combustion of a business. It has been small and spiritually too, not just business, but small, relational, spiritual, emotional, financial steps, small, measurable, failable steps that have gone from basically a thing out of his garage to like a really lucrative business. Business-wise, it could switch right over into, into spiritual. You know, people have different, everybody has their opinion, you know, on, on Todd White. Todd White is out, he's preaching the gospel, he's healing people. Some people have different opinions about his methods and so forth. Here's the thing about it. To me, in the kingdom, if I read this Bible, an ounce of action is worth about a pound of words, right? And so out of all this, if he practices it some way, right, and, and does it some way that I wouldn't have done it, and frankly, I don't think he would do it any differently than I wouldn't, I'm not gonna tell Todd White to do anything differently, but this is what I would say, is if me and him are getting in a room, he's not listening to me, I'm gonna listen to him right? Because action trumps words every single time. And here's the thing about the Todd White thing, is that Todd White, when he goes out and heals people, people are getting set free. They're hearing the gospel. They're, here, they're seeing uh, like a man that looks like Jesus, you know, in a world that has churches that don't. He's out there praying for people. And here's the thing you got to understand, that there's, there's, there's grit on, on the way from the promise to the palace. Like he prayed for a thousand people and didn't see anybody healed. And so there is steps, there's like, like it's not just overnight, it's a therapy, it's a continual devotion inside of failure, inside of pain, inside of rejection, of continually doing small, scary steps that, that seems to be more like biblical transformation than I just got somebody's hand on me and all of a sudden the light bulbs turn on. And so if, if you know, you and me, we want this change, but that's the question is like, you know, do, are, are, we, are we trusting Jesus to take these steps of accountability, responsibility, and ownership towards that change. Everybody in here, nobody in here wants to be like, I want to be 50 and totally isolated and alone, right? Nobody wants to do that. But the calendar in between, the, you know, in isolation and intimacy is a lot of awkward dinners. It's all of the little vortex of shame and whatever it is that you are afraid of, that you were the last picked and, you know, people will reject you and whatever that is, it's just a dinner over your house, but it might be louder to you than that. And faith is the thing that draws us into that place of pain, which opens up the doors of freedom. But make no mistake about it, community doesn't happen if it doesn't get built. If it doesn't have 
consecutive, accountable, responsible ownership level decisions, leadership. Everybody wants to have an impact. Everybody wants to make a difference. Nobody wants to be insignificant and just leadership. The, 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 the journey from here to there is a hundred little steps of serving with invisibility and caring for people more than you care for yourself. Like that's the journey and that's the difference of talking and listening versus doing. Everybody wants to be more grateful. Everybody doesn't want to be jealous. We're all tempted to be comparative-driven and to be shame-driven and to be buried in despair and all these things that these emotional cycles can lead. But the steps, what, we, what will we do about it? What is, the, what is the gratitude that we will write down? What are the individual, the prayer walks, the things that we could do on, on, on a step-by-step basis that represent our devotion to change? Verse 26, as he closes, he says, those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves. Like the historical innuendo for a hypocrite back in the you know, Greek language is an actor. Like it's just a person in a play. The ability for somebody to say the lines, to play a part, to be a method, to be Robert De Niro, to be a method actor, to literally even feel sometimes like they are that character, are not going home at night still that character. And so what he's promising us is not, not a, a surface level play, but an inside out transformation and change. He says, don't let your listening and don't let your talking lie to you because you can lie, we can lie to ourselves. It's a very common thing to deceive ourselves. Don't be deceived. That religion is worthless. It's hollow. Verse 27, religion, religion that God the Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans, which is justice and widows, loving neighbor in their distress, and to keep oneself from being holy, to be in the world, not of the world, to love God and be righteous and not be polluted by the world. And so um, the, the metaphor that comes to mind as I, as I read this passage today you know, with you is I was thinking about that science experiment. You remember they put the little mouse in the middle of the, um, the, uh, the, the table and they put like an invisible electric fence around that little mouse. And then, they, you know, they put the cheese out here. It's always the cheese. And they put the electric fence. And then the mouse like runs after the cheese and bzz, and then gets zapped, you know. And then bzz, and they get zapped. And they run and they can't get out. And then what do they do, right? The next, after a week of that, the mouse kind of learns and stops coming to the edges. They take the invisible fence off. And then what happens? The mouse for the rest of its days has cheese over here, but never gets to the cheese because it always thinks there's an invisible fence. And this is the nature, I think, of, of, of Christ, is that Jesus died for the penalty of law of sin and death and opens up the gates of freedom for us. But the problem is, is because we are born in Christ, we were raised in Adam, and we have 20 or 30 or 50 years, maybe, of behavior patterns that are set. That what is it that, like, my life is in Christ, you know, but my, my flesh is in my father, my bones, my grandfather lives in my bones. And... And so we can sit in these prison cells with the gate wide open without walking out. Jesus did not just die for our forgiveness. He died for our freedom. The gift he wants to give you and me more than, more than we want for ourselves is the ability to get past ourselves and care for people more than we care about ourselves and, and, and lift others up towards Christ rather than push them down. The ability to, to leave rooms and not be so self-conscious of what other people thought of us that we have to deviously conspire and spin about our image and post on Instagram in ways like the thing that he wants for us most is to be whole. If there's anything that we should pray for, anything that he wants to give us is that we would be whole. And so this is the idea that freedom is purchased by Christ, but we are called to walk in it. That like a toddler, I mean, it's one thing to jump out of a plane, right? That's pretty scary. But the, the ability to try to learn how to walk again in front of people 
when everybody else is walking. It's so easy for everybody else to do the thing that, that, that he's called me to do, to lean into my weakness and, and experience the Lord's power. But yet that's where the power of God lives. That's where the freedom of God lives. And he's calling us out of that, out of that prison. And so I thought, I'd, uh, as the band would come forward, I thought I'd just put a couple questions for you this morning um, to just have a conversation with the Spirit. Like you're listening to me, right? And obviously, you know, you're listening to your own thoughts and you're listening, hopefully, to the Spirit of God. And I thought just in the spirit of the passage today that starts not with talking but with listening, that we might practice what we're preaching about here or might consider what the Scripture is saying. But the theme that I would see laced throughout this passage is the answer, right? Can people change? Not only is change possible, it's inevitable for Christians. It is the, is the peace of God that has come to us that has caused perseverance to develop hope and hope to develop character. He is not letting us go. God, grace is not just God's couch, it's his grip on our life. And he is sovereign to change. He's sovereign to save and he's sovereign to change and he's changing you. So our participation in this, but here's the thing, the reason why change is sacred. I mean, talk to a person that never, doesn't know God and see somebody get transformed out of drug addiction into freedom, financial debt into financial freedom. You see that, you know you're not just dealing with habits, you're dealing with heaven. Like you're dealing with something divine in there. And, and so the reason why though it's divine and rare at the same time is because change, change is the power of Christ, but also change is hard. And so the questions that I, I would have us sit with this morning um, as the band just begins to play is first, I just want to ask you this question, is the listen question. There are things that you could think of nine other topics you want to talk about. We all have our nine topics of the things that are going great and the things we're excited about. But there's just one other topic and it's the topic that your friends have been talking about. It's the topic that the Spirit's been talking to you about. It's the topic that, yeah, but they didn't really get it, and the Bible doesn't really mean that. And There are things that he's trying to say that are hard to hear. But it's so good when every door closes because you at least you know which door to walk through. It's so hard to hear, but it is the invitation. It is the doorway to change. And it's got to be that. The reason why it's beautiful but rare is because it's hard. And most people don't want that. But that is the portal of both pain and freedom. That is the step. If you've identified your fear, you've identified your step. And we could spend a lot of time listening to a lot of other voices building off our, our own paradigm to fortify the walls that keep us in our prisons. Or we could choose to listen to the hard word. Not because we love hard things, but because we love good things. And God gives us good gifts. And he could speak hard things that we might change. Secondly, <clears throat> that there's nine things that you're super strong at and what most of coping is if you look at the people that Jesus healed right when he was here on this earth not everybody had the same ailment and so ultimately if, if, if you have this one you know broken part of your heart or your life it doesn't mean that all other parts are broken so here's what we do with that usually what happens when we have broken parts and whole parts we lean on the strong parts and, and disregard the weak parts but God says my power doesn't live in your strength my grace is sufficient and it lives in your weakness and so we could spend 90% of our time working on these strengths or we could do the hard thing. There's something, it's a small little step to finally speak the truth to your mom, to tell, you, tell her the truth of at least what you are experiencing in your relationship. And 99% of people don't have healthy relationships with their mom or 90% don't have full healthy relationships with their mom because 90% of people don't want to say the hard thing, don't want to do the hard thing. Lastly, talking. What's the hard thing that you would need to say? truth that's in the room, the elephant in the room, and we've danced around it, and 
the reason why bullies don't get stood up to and we always say somebody else will stand up to the bully is because nobody wants to stand up to bullies. But the Spirit of God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of freedom and a sound mind. He has given you everything that you need. He will not lead you into temptation. He'll lead you and guide you into the truth. And he will not test you beyond what you bear because God is sovereign for your change. And he is in control. And he's giving you the greatest gift that anyone has ever received in this life, which is Christ-likeness. What is, what is hard to hear but good to hear? What is hard to do today but good to do today? What is hard to say but good to say? Would you invite, uh, would you stand?